Warning. Privatization makes lawyers, accountants, stockbrokers, bankers, and investors rich. They then make contributions to their benefactors' party, give jobs to defeated or retiring candidates, enrich the private lives of politicians with travel and entertainment, and in certain cases, fill their on- or offshore bank accounts. The basic needs of the populace cannot be entrusted to the linear and short-term needs of private investors. That's John Ralston Saul and the Doubter's Companion. Die, you immoral mafia bastards! Ah! I'll show you to treat the lives of children frivolously. Ah! Oh, hi there. My name's Sean. I'm Aaron. And we're private military contractors. Together we run the Seriously Wrong Subcontracted Military Forces Unit. And we try to do the rational thing every week and shoot the bastards on the other side that our financial backers told us to. From what the financial backer tells us, the financial backer of those guys is really kind of an asshole. He's accused of all sorts of just really messed up bad stuff. And it's it's really a pleasure to shoot at him and his men. Liberate uh, these people. Liberate, liberate the resources, the of course, resources. So for our financial backer. And the best part is it's totally private and efficient. No bloat, no government waste. Our private military unit is, is top of the line. Die, you bastards! I never get tired of that. You know what I never get tired of is the sight of blood when the bullets that we shoot out of our guns tear open the flesh of the enemy. Oh yeah, the best. <laughs> hey, do you mind holding down the fort and sh- shooting at these mafia bastards while I go check the mail service? It'll probably be a while before their backup arrives, so I can definitely hold down the fort here. I've just been waiting on a return letter from my sweet darling for so long. Oh, yeah. No, you have. You mentioned it a lot. Mm, Hopefully it came. I hope for your emotional well-being. I've just been shipped out to private war for so long. I miss her. Oh, my God. The letter's here. Darlene, I've missed you so much. (laughs) Unfold the paper. My dearest... I've missed you ever so much since that last night we were together, and I hold its memory in my heart, waiting for your return. I wanted to let you know that little Billy has been enjoying his karate lessons, and Samantha aced her spelling bee last week. I've also been thinking a lot about you and thinking a lot about how, unlike the Pentagon or the CIA, private military companies do not report to Congress thus circumventing any democratic accountability. They're also not subject to Freedom of Information Act requests. I've been burning with the need to tell you that no international laws exist to regulate or limit the scope of mercenary activity. Hiring private mercenaries allows the government to wage war outside of the public eye, which encourages mission creep. Something I thought it might interest you to know, my love, was that during World War II, 10% of America's armed forces were private contractors, and since then has risen to 75%. And what isn't even counted in those numbers is that many of the larger defense contractors hire even more subcontractors. And a 2010 Senate investigation found evidence that many of these subcontractors were linked to murder, bribery, and in some instances, working against the government that had hired them. And a 2010 House of Representatives report found that the Department of Defense had been hiring local warlords for their security services. And that when contractors leave, these newly enriched local warlords often go into business for themselves, which breeds mercenary markets in the wake of U.S. interventions. I've just been sitting here looking at your picture, getting more and more sick every minute, hoping that you will come home to me. I've never been so lonesome in my life as I am right now. I'm completely lost without you, darling. I just hope that it won't be too much longer until I'm able to see you again. Your wife, Darlene.
<sighs> I'm so glad she's thinking of me. <sighs> Darlene. Well, back to the fight. Oh, hey, did you get your letter? I did, yeah, yeah. It was really thoughtful stuff. So good to hear from her. Ah, you amoral fuckers! You don't deserve to live! <sighs> well, glad, glad to have you back. I'm happy to be back, too. Oh, oh what is this? Uh, beeper's going off. Uh, seriously wrong subcontracted military organization hired. Oh, looks like our financial backers dropped us and we're actually now being financially backed by the guys on the other side there. Oh, okay. Switching warlords. Efficient. Well, you just got a pay rise. I feel good about that. It's rational. And now we just walk across the field. Hey, hey, no, don't worry. Don't no, worry. No, we're joining we're, your side. We're, we're joining your side. Look, we'll kill our old, uh, the other <laughs> subcontractors. Uh, die, you bastards. <laughs> you amoral scum. Hey, yeah, see, we're on see, your side. Joining, you understand. Yeah. Private war. Private. Yes, you're yeah. all subcontractors, too. Yeah, great to be on the team. Thanks. Yeah, thanks. thanks. Uh, what uh, a warm welcome. Uh, you know what? I was just I just learned today. We don't have to report any of this to Congress. It's incredible. Can you imagine if we put, let those bureaucratic middlemen here? Oh, it would be the worst. Uh, you know, what a great world we live C- in. Congress has the approval rating of what? A rotten tuna sandwich? <laughs> we, we need to get their accountability? No thanks. Uh, so true. So true. This episode of Seriously Wrong is brought to you by the people who donate to Seriously Wrong. Our ability to continue doing the show and make the show as high quality as it is, is reliant on listener donations. Hey, oh, you're a listener. Can you help us out and give us $6 a month to keep the show going? Aaron and I really wish that we could make way more episodes and do way more research, but it takes a lot of time and effort and we love doing it, but there's just only so much we can do while also working other jobs. So thank you so much to everyone who donates to the show. Thanks for listening. Welcome to the show. Privatization. What's our stance on it? Keep listening to find out. So I have a definition of privatization here for you and see what you think. Define it for me, man. Privatization is when government-controlled monopolies that have no accountability and no reason to care about efficiency or turning a profit are sold to private sector entrepreneurs who have to then compete in an open market. Uh, That makes the products that they sell more efficient. They search for ways to offer better services at cheaper prices to increase their market share and increase profits, creating benefit for everyone because the government makes money on the sale. The consumers end up with a cheaper, better product and the companies make money and basically everything is better. So yeah, not only do you get the short-term cash injection of selling public assets um, at a rate that someone's determined will be profitable to them in the future, you'll also get the, the added benefit of increased economic growth, efficiency. You'll take these essential public services, these things that are so important to us, like telecommunications, like rail service, like even public water systems. You can take that out of the bloated public service cronies and then move that into an efficient, positive space where you're going to have increased productivity, more dividends for shareholders, lots of dividends for shareholders. That's one of the best parts. Lots of innovation and competition as Mm -hmm. well. Okay, look, if you're a government providing a service, then what incentive do you have to keep costs low? What incentive do you have, if it's a monopoly, you know, to make sure that the customer is happy? If it's privatized, then you get the incentives. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, incentives completely disappear when a government runs something because governments don't care about budget. They have unlimited budget. They can just point a gun at people, get more budget. Mm-hmm. They Money grubbers by nature. They don't care about providing a good service because what, what choice do you have? When a private company runs something, you have lots of choice all of a sudden. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) even though there's only one person operating public transit as a private corporation it's still competitive because something something corporations well it's it's competing with all the young upstarts who now because it's a wide open market instead of something controlled you know anyone could buy a bus and just start offering public transit services Mm -hmm. if you and i buy some buses start running down that road for a dollar 75 instead of 275 Mm -hmm. we can undercut them and make tons of money then they'll be forced to compete, lower their prices for the consumer. It's perfect. Yep. <laughs> You're like, I'm running out of steam on yeah, this. Yeah, <laughs> I'm running out of steam on the, the ironic 
endorsements of of privatization because i when i was looking for like what are the arguments that people have that you should privatize because like privatization is so endemic like for example our center left ruling party at the federal level the liberals super in favor of privatization they wear rainbow socks progressive on on a lot of issues in the same time legalized weed legalized weed working on the process of legalizing weed i think that's a legitimately good step but at the same time also privatizing infrastructure they're like yeah progressive vision for canada privatize infrastructure legalize weed i was so busy rubbing my hands together in anticipation of that legal weed i wasn't paying attention to whether or not anything was privatized that's how they get you (laughs) (laughs) really the only arguments i could find for privatization because i mean i've got a cynical explanation for why it happens which is that privatization or like public-private partnerships, they're a way for governments to get increases in infrastructure without having to actually put up the sort of capital spending themselves. So you get the benefits of creating infrastructure at the end, but with less budget impacts. And if you're a government that's moving from like budget to budget, working from a premise that you need to have balanced budgets, there's an incentive to have a partnership with a private corporation that will put up all the capital in exchange for a return on investment. And then you don't have to change anything on your balance sheet. So that's sort of like the cynical explanation for why it happens. Hmm. But I was like, there's got to be like ideologues that are like super in favor of privatization in general. And I found an article by the Fraser Institute, which is a right wing think tank. It's not really right wing so much as like a capitalist, neoliberal think tank. And actually, the Fraser Institute was founded in response to... The Dave Barrett government in BC in the 1970s, it was like Mm -hmm. the socialist premier of BC that our province had for a couple of years. The Fraser Institute was formed to like... Counter signal against him. Yeah, to counter signal against him and the potential of more people like him in the future. Right. And like try to build this common sense in Canada of capitalist politics. And... They mentioned that in terms of the short-term budget impacts being positive. Like if you sell off assets... You get a cash injection. Yeah, exactly. Then that helps uh, balance your budgets if you really want to balance some budgets. But <laughs> it's it, like you only have so many essential services. you can, If you're relying on <laughs> selling them off in order to balance your budgets, it's just not a, it's not a long-term budget balancing plan. <laughs> it seems like a really yeah, bad it, argument. I don't it's, know. <laughs> it's... You know what it is? Is it's crackhead governance, right? It's yeah. like <laughs> it's like getting a Best Buy credit card and maxing it out to buy some TVs and then selling yeah, them right, off. Right. You know, it's like that's what privatization is. But there's studies, and these studies are criticized for being politicized to achieve an ends that are cited by like people who support privatization, and they claim things like increased economic growth, improved performance, and increased efficiency. So these things sound good in theory, but it depends really importantly, like what are you talking about when you say efficiency? Because if you're talking about efficiency that you're generating more profits and spending less money, that's usually what's meant in like the economic realm of efficiency. It's not about, oh, we use the resources perfectly well. Like what an efficient use of chalk. You know, we ran out of chalk right at the end of drawing our chalk mural. That's perfectly efficient. That's not what's meant by sort of capitalist efficiency. Capitalist efficiency is spending as little money as possible to achieve the maximum profit possible. It has absolutely no reflection embedded in that of the quality of service or the customer experience or anything like that, except for the continued profitability of it, which is always taken as a sign of consent. Yeah, well, it's like, I wouldn't say there's zero relationship between those two things, but it's a very tenuous and not perfectly correlated relationship. Like, obviously, if you provide the worst possible service and like if you charge a million dollars for a train ride where people pee all over each other, (laughs) of course, nobody's going to pay for that and your business will crash and you won't make any more profits. So like the the worst possible (laughs) inefficient train bus service or whatever, yes, isn't going to make any profits, but it's definitely not maximizing for like people treat them as if they're synonymous and it's yeah definitely far from synonymous let's say there's more than one competing privatized train line it costs a million dollars and when you go on it you get peed on by a bunch of guys yeah (laughs) let's let's imagine that you know there's a few major providers of trains and they all have similar problems right you know some you get peed on a little less but you pay a little more than a million (laughs) (laughs) it roughly balances out they offer different deals at certain times of the year it's like book now for january and you'll get 30 percent less pee in your mouth like when i think of the p train 
example. an example of you. The world just fleshes itself out of my brain. One of the main things that was jumping out to me reading about this stuff was that things that are getting privatized are usually, as we've been saying, like essential public services. And because they're essential public services, when the government sells them off, the government isn't divested of responsibility from making that thing work. And so it often ends up that they end up having to subsidize the private companies. And it has to regulate them because a lot of them are like dangerous things. Like you have to impose regulations and then you have to oversee the companies and make sure that the regulations are being followed. It's not like you sell off the railroads and then all of a sudden the government doesn't have to worry about railroads anymore. No, the government still has to worry about railroads. It just has less direct control over the railroads and it can often end up being a bloating factor on yeah, the yeah. government. It's like a bureaucratizing than, uh, effect because yeah, you're adding all these extra layers of paperwork. It's like now the government sends its regulation dictates off to the five different head offices and they respond back and forth and then they're getting their subcontractors to do certain things and like or yeah. hiring someone to do the inspections and so you're just creating these all these different layers and layers and I think this is like one of the big themes of privatization is when you privatize, you create all these subsections, contracting jobs, all these like Russian nesting dolls where everyone's taking a little sliver of profit along the way, not necessarily adding productive value. Like middlemen, rent seekers, especially if it's a natural monopoly of some kind. So that could be like a regional power authority or the water system of a city or public transit or or something that exists that is needed, but there isn't necessarily like a market place for mm -hmm. the, the way that yeah. there should be yeah, yeah, yeah. schools and hospitals ideally where the level of service people need at a price they actually can pay is inevitably going to have to be subsidized if you want to have any sort of like social equity and guaranteed basic outcomes for people oh hey man thanks uh, for coming camping with me my pleasure you know i love to spend time under the stars and sleep on the ground, you name it. Uh, I brought my air mattress. I don't sleep on the ground. Oh, okay. Well, to each their own. I just rough it. A bit of a princess, you know. Oh, well. I want to feel every rock. You know, it's really about roughing it for me. It's just one of the ways I maintain my masculinity. One of the ways I rough it is just by only bringing three pillows instead of my normal six. That's foreign to me, but differences are what make the world beautiful, right? Yeah. And well, one thing we share is that we both love marshmallows. You want to go sit by the fire? Yeah. Just uh, open this package of marshmallows. Hand it over to you. Here, you take this stick. I'll I, take a stick. It's got the sticker on it from last time that you put on it. Oh, great! Yeah, I don't want any of your cooties on my marshmallows. <laughs> you know, just you know, friends can joke like that, but I don't have cooties. Oh, I love the heat of this fire. Oh, that's toasty. Do you mind if I take off my boots? I don't know how it is in there. Sure. Yeah. No. You don't mind. Do you mind? I was thinking well, while we wait for these marshmallows to toast, I might tell you a little bit about the uh, privatization of the British Railroad. Sure, sure, yeah. And I've, I've always been curious to follow up on that topic. So they did, they did it in a really interesting way where the infrastructure or the actual rails themselves, the switching stations, was sold off to one company called Railtrack. Uh -huh. But the actual trains themselves and running the trains along the track was sold off to multiple companies. So the tracks were run by one company and the trains were run by a ton of different companies depending on the region and the location. That's a really weird choice. What possible justification do they have for that? Competition? It's actually hard to know what the justification would be because you can't really run competing railroads on the same sections of track, which they recognized, and which is why only one company could still run one section of track. There's only one track. There's got to be one coherent total schedule that all of the trains and all of the tracks are following. Yeah, so the fragmentation, it's yeah, hard, hard to justify. Oh, your marshmallow's on fire. Oh, I got so caught up talking about the privatization of the British railroads and forgot. You know, I don't even mind that it was on fire though because sometimes I like to just pick the burnt part off, oh, throw it in the fire, and then ew. just eat the gooey inside. Mm. Oh, oh, that's twisted, man. You're, you're, you're a wild one, dude. Mm. So the fragmentation... Mm. 
led to uh, m- massive costs associated with the government still has to regulate the rail industry. It's important. Yes, needed by the government to make the country work. So any minor change to rail regulations that was introduced was correlated with a huge cost of oversight of yeah, negotiating with different shareholders. And- yeah, it's an insane multiplication of effort. So the end result of this is that costs to the consumer skyrocketed. Oh. Skyrocketed. Skyrocketed and down? <laughs> uh, you're funny, you're funny. No, skyrocketed up. Do you, you, got, you got the graham crackers, right? Oh, no. I, I forgot, forgot the, the graham, graham crackers, crackers again. again. <sighs> I always forget the graham crackers. This I don't know why. This always love- happens. Gotcha. I got graham crackers. You did? Yeah, I you do. did. I knew you'd forget. Oh, um, you know me so well. You think I'm going to trust you to bring the graham crackers <laughs> after last time? Well, here, pop them open. Pass a couple over here. Yeah, here you go. That's a good mm, thing about you. it's a complementarity in our friendship, right? Perfect for camping. Mm, and you know what else is perfect? This latest marshmallow didn't burn this one. I'm just going to sandwich it in between these graham crackers. Oh, my God. Can you imagine marshmallows without graham cat crackers? <laughs> Kill me now. Am I right? Mmm. Mm. That's just my first one because I gave it a nice light toast. Mm. Mm. So as I was saying, mm. not only did the the actual cost people paid have huge increases, the subsidies that the government is paying out to all these private corporations are actually more expensive than it was to run it before they sold it all off. So the government's spending so- more money... <laughs> Oh my God, why is the government so incompetent mm. to allow this to happen? I don't know, but uh, what I do know is that I mentioned all the infrastructure, the rails themselves were sold off to a company called Railtrack. They very quickly fell into financial ruin and after multiple high profile crashes due to the incompetence of that company, uh-huh. which killed many people and cost everyone a fortune, it's a theme where all this costing people a fortune, that specific company was renationalized. So that that's the situation as it exists now. The government runs the tracks and uh, a whole bunch of different private companies that are extremely heavily subsidized, more than it costs to run the whole shebang before run trains that cost the public higher ticket prices. So they're paying more money for worse service and paying higher rates. Who's the joke on here? Who's the joke on here? Uh, the public. The public. <laughs> yeah, the public. Oh, you're letting your marshmallow burn now. <laughs> Honestly, it's burning like my anger at this. Maybe um, symbolically you should just let it burn to nothing and drop into the fire like the rail service is going to do if they don't uh, renationalize it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. I'm going to not touch it. I can just watch it burn and just think about how sort of in a way our culture and society is burning under neoliberalism. Not going to do that with mine, though. I want to eat this one too bad. Can I have a couple more graham crackers? Yeah, absolutely. Here you go. Mm, thank you. But yeah, we camp to get away from this stuff. You know, we camp to get away from this stuff. Do you want to like role play that we're both forest people? And like, that we don't even... live in the forest? Yeah, yeah. Like just fully commit, like pretend, like sort of grunt instead of talk and stuff. Mm. Or, I don't know. Maybe it's, it's stupid. We don't, we don't need to do it. Well, you're onto something there. Now it's time for the Seriously Wrong Book Club. I recently read a book about Dave Barrett, who was the socialist premier of the province of British Columbia in the 70s. I recently read his memoir, which is called The Passionate Political Life. Dave Barrett was pretty against privatization. There's an anecdote that I thought was really funny, which is that when they raised the minimum wage from $2 to $2.50 an hour, the CEO of the Canadian Pacific Limited, which was a national rail company in Canada, said to Dave Barrett in a private meeting, if we have to pay our chambermaids at our hotels the new rate, our hotel's going to go in the red. And Dave Barrett responded, I'll tell you what, let's you and I go on television. You tell everyone that you can't pay $2.50 an hour to your chambermaids. And I'll tell everybody why we should take back every crown grant, every forest license, and every piece of property you've got from the taxpayers of Canada and British Columbia. Then the diplomatic MLA who was sitting in the meeting said, Mr. Sinclair, what the premier really means to say is that there will be no decrease in the minimum wage which I think is an amazing story. But there was another amazing story just sort of trickled throughout this book uh, about the BC Petroleum Corporation. It was a crown corporation established by Dave Barrett's government in the 70s. Basically, it was a facilitator of 
petroleum resources that served as a middleman between producers and, and consumers. And they established a partnership with a private corporation called West Coast Transmissions to ensure that West Coast Transmissions would get about a 9 or 10% return on investment. In exchange for that, the BC Petroleum Corporation would take on 130 contracts from 80 producers that were formerly run by West Coast, and West Coast would focus on the distribution end. Within four and a half months of that, BC Petroleum had earned $19 million in profits, which is three times the amount that there was normally earned in petroleum profits in a year by the province of BC. And by the end of the 70s, this whole arrangement had earned the people of BC $700 million that went into general revenue to pay for services that they liked, for example, schools. But then, eventually, a hostile government that was led by Bill Vanderzam, who's an infamously shitty guy in BC history. In Dave Barrett's memoir, he mentions that Vanderzam handed over BC Petroleum to a group of natural gas producers and didn't get a penny for this Crown Corporation, except for the promise of a smaller percentage of revenue. So basically, wise investments were made by a government that identified as socialists. And then as part of a sort of anti-socialist handing off of assets, a privatization scheme was done at the cost of millions of dollars of revenue to the BC people, which in order to maintain the same services would invariably mean an increase in taxes. So there's your little BC history lesson for today. And the book I'm talking about for Wrong Boys Book Club is called Barrett, A Passionate Political Life. Um, it's about the former BC Premier Dave Barrett. Here's a quote from the Fraser Institute. If the private sector faces sustained losses, they will face bankruptcy. The private sector must therefore provide its customers with quality goods and services in a timely manner at affordable prices. The public sector doesn't face the same pressures. What? <laughs> it's just, you see this with the narrow economic logic all the time where people will build this little like sort of fantasy world like on this imaginary sort of graph paper. And it's like if you have rational man A and rational man B then surely rational man B would never do something that, you know, like... Yeah, but like, why don't those same pressures... Like, okay, I understand a government-run railroad, if it's running at a loss, probably isn't going to go to bankruptcy. Like, there's a, there's a difference there. Mm -hmm. But I don't understand why that means there's no pressure to be efficient. There's no pressure to provide good services at uh, an affordable cost. Like, it seems like those pressures always exist and maybe even exist a little bit more for publicly run organizations because the public has some imperfect but direct feedback mechanism uh, where they exercise some control over the government that just doesn't exist. Like the, pu the public can't vote out the CEO of newly privatized Public Transit Inc. It's so funny because when something is privatized, everyone will complain about the privatized thing incessantly because all of a sudden the cost of rates are going up, the quality of service is decreasing. And these are all things that are predictable in the very structure of privatization leading up to it. So, so like people will be like, oh, this private company that used to be public, we should have more control over it. Like, And maybe that's a, that's a good instinct that people have. But then also originally, when public sector things start to fail or start running deficits and stuff like that, the first call, thanks to the hard work of the professional liars and charlatans at the Fraser Institute and other places, the first call from the public is like, privatize it, privatize it. We need competition. Right. Competition will save us from the transit nightmare. Yeah. And the competition thing, it's like, if it is a field in which competition is possible, and private companies could compete with the government and be successful and like do it better than the government, then usually they do. And if you look at like the Federal Postal Service or something, U.S. Postal Service, Canadian Postal Service, it, you didn't have to nationalize the Canadian Postal Service for FedEx and those other things to exist and to offer certain services at like, you know, sending a package sometimes is cheaper with FedEx and you might go with them. Sometimes it's cheaper to use Canada Post and you go with them. If it is a field where competition is possible, you don't have to privatize anything. Like, just let them do it. Just do your upstart business. They'll say like, oh, it's not fair that the government is subsidizing our competitors. You know, it's not fair to us. So therefore, they shouldn't get subsidies to make sure it's a fair competition. But like, no, no, no. Actually, the reason it's subsidized is because it's providing a public service. Mm -hmm. And if you can't compete with the public service version, fuck off. Yeah, like, yeah the if, whole point is you're saying you can do it better. 
<laughs> so yeah, yeah. So if you can do it better, then you should be able to compete. And if you can't compete with the subsidized version, well, then you, you, you suck. Subsidizing programs is one of the things that governments do. Like you can have a public sector something that runs at a loss and yeah. then you measure whether or not it's serving a social purpose. Yeah. And then that's your budget item is look, oh, it's serving a social purpose. Like it costs money to do things that especially costs money to do really big and important things that change a lot of people's lives for the better. It costs money. Yeah. It's not necessarily going to tie profit one-to-one with social benefit. That's just never going to happen. So like one of the benefits of preventing privatization is that you can run things at a loss for public benefit or also configure them to generate profit and put that into general revenue, which means that in effect, you can do more with less taxes. So if you're against taxes, you should also be against privatization because if someone is willing to buy a government asset, that means they think it's potentially profitable. They're not going to buy it because like, oh, this thing is losing money and I anticipate that will continue going on forever. <laughs> I'd, I'm going <laughs> to buy this thing, pay money so that I can lose money. That's that's my plan. Yeah, yeah so if, not a, if yeah. someone has any bit of any size for any public organization and they want to privatize it, that means they anticipate they can make money off of it. So if they can make money off of it, that means that you can generate profit that instead of going to some random guy, goes into general revenue and helps pay for services that everyone relies on. No, no, no. You're forgetting the deep mystical truth that anything run by the government inefficiency increases, I think... The uh, universal coefficient is by 50 50 times less efficient. Basically, I would accuse privatization of being a sort of inherently kleptocratic system where powerful people hand off public assets and profit-generating ventures to their friends at discount prices. In almost all cases, it's just a crime against the public. You're just robbing from public wealth. Anyone will tell you if you've got a goose that lays golden eggs every day you shouldn't sell that goose for a one-time thing of like five or six of their eggs like you, right. you should <laughs> yeah. hold on to the goose and sell the eggs this is basic economic logic but when we look at governments we no longer apply that logic because we project this mythological bumbling government businesses never bumble there's a reason that the two b's there sound really good together it's because it's true <laughs> I saw this stat that estimated that of all the Thatcherite privatizations, what it amounted to was a 14 billion pound transfer of wealth from the public or from state-run entities into the hands of private entities. Because often these things have to be sold off. These things that aren't making money have to be sold off at very low prices in order to incentivize people to want to buy them. So the things that were sold off were worth 14 billion pounds more than they were sold off for. Plus there was 3 billion pounds of bank fees and other like transfer fees and things like, on top of that. Got to get <laughs> so a little some off of those the middlemen. top if we're going to help. So, so privatization so, so, stuff. Uh, so so, so gonna, all this this going to need sleek, a sliver of that tax revenue. <laughs> this sleek government budget wonderful privatization just like basically immediately cost not in terms of budget, but in terms of wealth held by the state, cost the state of Britain 17 billion pounds. Whew, what a benefit. What a yeah, benefit thanks, to the people. Thanks, Thatcher. You're, you're a real <laughs> economic superstar. I get a golden goose egg every single day, and I can sell that for $500 every day for the rest of our government. But this guy just offered me 2000 bucks for the goose now. On my weekly budget? That looks great. Like last week, <laughs> I only had seven eggs. This week... <laughs> I'm very proud to say we're, we're running a healthy surplus of $215 this week. And it all comes down to our, our very good economics that makes us geniuses. <laughs> uh, here's another example like that. Um, CN Rail, it's one of the largest rail systems uh, in North America. It goes through the United States and Canada. It was facing economic hard times as a private corporation in Canada. And in 1919, it was running a $1.3 billion deficit, but it was running a service that was really important to Canada. So the Canadian government nationalized them, paid off their debt, which $1.3 billion in 1919, in 2017 dollars, that's almost $17 billion that they bailed them out because it was an essential service. Right. Flash forward, go through a couple decades. Well, it's time to privatize. How much money do you think we got for it? 
1995. Mm. Let's see. It's, it's, it, in between mm, 1992 and 1995. 80 billion dollars. 80 billion? Yeah. Well, that would be really great. If we had paid $17 billion, run it for 70 years, and then sold it off for $80 billion, well, we would have made a profit of $63 billion. That would be really great. Yeah. Uh, we didn't do that. Oh, okay. So maybe just $17 billion. We just recouped the losses. We made $17 billion? Uh, no. No. Unfortunately, it was actually much, much low. Maybe, maybe even criminally low at a mere $1.9 billion in 1995 money, which in 2017 dollars is $2.8 billion. So we paid... $16.9 billion, ran it, fixed the problems with it, ran it for 70 years, <laughs> and then sold it for a little under $3 billion. Economic genius at work, folks. <laughs> Maybe there's really something to these governments being fucking stupid with money thing. <laughs> uh, it's true. Let's just privatize the whole government. That absurdity that you just pointed out, like it's like the genius of the fucking Fraser Institute consensus they created, right? Is that when public and private mingle and private gets a really good deal and public really gets fucked over, hmm. it's just more proof of the theory that private business is smart and government is dumb. But there's self-interest for the politicians to do this because they get the short-term budget impacts of being able to say, like, I had a balanced budget this year and we didn't have to cut services. Like, all we had to do was make all of our profitable sectors in the hands of people who uh, are going to pay really small taxes and hide most of it in offshore tax shelters. Economic genius. La, 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 la. And then his political party gets all these donations from fucking millionaires that his privatization deal created. I'm on to you guys. Okay, little Jeffy, it's time for story time. Okay, teacher. Would you tell me the story about privatization in post-Soviet Russia again? Again? Jeffy. I love that one. I told you this story. So, All right. Okay. Just because you've been doing so well on your various tests and measurements. Thank you, teacher. Okay, Jeffy. So following the fall of the Soviet Union, Russia instituted a voucher system to privatize assets and uh, energy, finances, and industry. The idea was they'd give each Russian citizen an equal share of the national wealth, which came to about 10,000 rubles or about $63 American. So that meant they had shares in all the new private companies? Yeah, so they distributed them to about 98% of Russian citizens. Mm, sounds very fair. Uh, this was actually proposed by Anatoly Shubais, who's the finance minister of Russia, based on suggestions from economists from Harvard. You know, some people allege that the voucher system wasn't perfect and that some people got more vouchers than others and there was some sort of insider dealing. But it's more commonly accepted that um, because most of the recipients were poor and desperate and, and needed money, they sold off their vouchers to mm. people who already had money. So people who had made money one way or another would be able to buy a bunch of vouchers and then take control of these um, private corporations. Does that make sense? That it was distributed to everyone, but because they were poor and desperate and didn't have a lot of economic education, they liquidated their assets right away because they, uh, there was short-term financial gain there, even though for each individual citizen it would be, make more sense to hold on to their assets. Yeah, teacher, that makes sense. Poor Russians. I wish they'd had more education like I'm getting right now. Oh, me too, Jeffy. You know, the finance minister, minister actually earned the nickname the most hated man in Russia. And the mayor of Moscow said, the finance minister and his youth squad is giving away state property like a drunk selling everything in the house. That's a historical quote, Jeffy. Oh, wow. And, uh, well, to summarize how it ended up, um, to quote Seamus Millen in The Guardian, uh, these privatizations ushered in the most cataclysmic peacetime economic collapse of an industrial country in history. It brought in its wake mass pauperization and unemployment, wild extremes of inequality, rampant crime, virulent anti-Semitism and ethnic violence, legalized gangsterism, and precipitous looting of private assets. In 1989, the amount of people below the poverty line in Russia was 14 million, and by 1998, it was 147 million. So that's why it's no surprise that in 2001, 85% of Russians say they regret the dissolution of the Soviet Union. Isn't that interesting, Jeffy? The privatization increased poverty by a factor of 10 times? That's not going to happen here, is it, teacher? Oh, I'm no, no, no. The privatization we do in North America is much more efficient than that, and it really works. Well, I'm not going to be 10 times poverty? No, no. And I mean, we are moving to privatize the school. I mean, we got to balance the budget somehow. 
and it's different here. Okay, teacher. Can't wait. Okay, well, go run and play now. Don't <gasps> think about the uh, adult things too much. I love running and playing. So which things do you think we should uh, privatize entirely? The schools? I would definitely start by privatizing schools. I would then move on to privatize all hospitals. And then Ooh. at the end, I would move on to privatize everything in the commons. So land, air, water, roads. I'd love to also privatize firemen mm. and obviously the police. the police and the military. But like actually privatizing schools is probably a really terrible idea. Yeah, I think there's a good principle at work when you're thinking about equity of access for people, regardless of their like financial or social background, to receive a basic education that includes like literacy, mathematics, exposure to art and music and socialization with other children. Like that's so key that children are given that. And I get the critiques of public schools, like when they let kids down. And I think it's absolutely true that like my public school experience wasn't a perfect shining example of glorious, incredible socialism that will ring throughout history. But it is good that even though I was from a low-income family, I was able to access the same standard of education as some of my peers that were from a higher-income family. And I think that principle in public schools is, is really, really essential. Yeah, I mean, like one of the things critics of public schools often criticize is things like standardized tests or just just an overall sort of limited range of acceptable types of education. It's just like things like school choice. Like I like the idea of school choice. It would be great to have different kinds of schools that parents could choose which ones to send their kids to. You know, they're all providing good education. Like they're all providing basic, decent amount of mathematics, but like maybe offer different learning styles that can be tailored to different children's needs and stuff. There's, no, there's nothing wrong with having some choice. Yeah. I, I've read about all sorts of different interesting types of schools, you know, that do things different ways. And I think that principle of choice does not conflict with ensuring a guaranteed basic outcome when it comes to schooling, that students, regardless of their financial circumstances, are always going to be able to reach the same quality of education that other people do. It just creates like a baseline in society that I think is is really good and universalist. And I just feel strong urge to defend it. Yeah, it's just like a lot of the problems with current public schooling systems too also come from, I don't know, certain things just seem like half-assed attempts to like appease privatization people. Things like offering more funding to schools that get better test results. Like, oh, if we incentivize incentivize them for better test results for, for more money. That's kind of like recreating this profit incentive and getting them going. But really what it ends up doing is just like really diverting funds away from where they're needed most, which is the schools that are having the most trouble getting the students to have the best education. Oh, yeah, that is really weird. That's such a good microcosm of how like the whole narrow economic logic thing works. It's like, this guy's rich. Give him more money. Like, <laughs> Yeah. I don't know. It's like one of the ways this ideology of privatization is fucking up even the way we run public things. I say we, but I should say the way the U.S. runs public things. I don't, I don't think Canadian schools are funded that way. An example from the local scene here in BC I know about is that under the previous provincial government, which was like a free market, free enterprise government, they didn't privatize medical care, although they individuals of them did talk about it. Like one of them mentioned in a debate, it was like a major gaffe because Canadians don't like that. BC residents at least mostly don't like that. But they did privatize the cleaning of hospitals. So like here in Vancouver, it's actually noticeable if you go to the hospital sometimes that the cleaning of the hallways is not up to the standard that you would really hope for a hospital. And apparently the reason for that is that the previous free enterprise government privatized hospital cleaning and locked the province in a 20-year contract that they can't leave without paying out. There's like an acceleration term. So in order to leave, they have to pay out this contract to these people who are providing a worse quality service at a higher price than when the hospitals just had their own cleaning staff. Right. So there's no there's no competition. It's not like they were like, we're contracting out the cleaning. And so lots of people are going to bid. And whoever does it the best for the cheapest is going to get the job. Yeah, there might have been different bids, but... The, no, no, I mean an ongoing <laughs> bid yeah, yeah, no, no. <laughs> where you can get fired if you do a bad job, which is kind of part of 
how that's supposed to be efficient. No, that's only poor people get fired if they do a bad job. <laughs> yeah, that's an, this this example is another weird way that the ideology of privatization is infecting even publicly run things because like you're not they're, they're not going to privatize my healthcare. Like Canadians would not fucking stand for that. But what they'll do is just privatize and subcontract little aspects of it to drive up the costs of public healthcare. Because they're <laughs> make it they're seem paying worse. all the middlemen at a lower stage than the 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 public part. <laughs> so they're just they privatize all these little wings of it, and everyone gets their huge profits there. Then delivers a substandard service and walks away with big bags of money. Yeah, and you talk about cushy government jobs. They're just offering cushy government jobs to companies, <laughs> to private companies, to the owners of businesses. Uh, cushy government contracts, I guess is the. And th- this is such a key thing about the privatization debate and the way that it's framed and thought of is that, again, if you dislike, quote, big government, Mm. everything that's bad about big government, like the cronyism, the insider dealing, the people who are enriching themselves at the expense of other people, privatization pretends to be an anti-big government measure while replicating all of the most toxic and insidious things that big government is accused of. Like amplifying them even. Yeah, it's an incredible shell game. They give away things that belong to you, that belong to everyone, to their friends. They sell you out. You're the victim. They're taking advantage of you. They're taking advantage of the fact that we don't all fight against this. So like it often gets framed in terms of private versus public ownership. And then sometimes like you can think of public ownership as ownership by the government, which is all those guys over there who do these things I don't like, like raise taxes or whatever. Mm-hmm. But or or there's probably room for things that are neither Yes, yeah, state run versus corporate run. Well, yeah, something that's beyond both of those. I mean, well, there's there's certain criteria you could evaluate them both by, like, say, transparency and honesty and participation and stuff like that. Yeah, um, yeah, So yeah, you, you could say, sense. like, oh, this private one is better than this public one, but this public one is better than this private one. It's not really a competition. Like, public's inherently good because it's always democratic and accountable and so on. It's right. just that it should be, and we technically have the mechanisms to create that. Yeah, well, I mean, like, in democratic accountability is a really good thing that public has over private. Yeah. Or like, it, like government has over uh, corporations, let's say. Because like, I guess there's also NGOs and NPOs. Those are kind of like somewhere between private and public. Yeah, and like a, also a charity. Yeah. A charity. But, yeah, they're, yeah. They're all sort of, they're, but all of them exist because they're given the right to by governments in some way. Yeah. Like they oh, yeah, exist definitely. within legal frameworks of governments. Yeah. And also that's one of the reasons that government's so primordial to the conversation like government is the genesis of all these other different types of organizations and so yeah, they literally de- like what a corporation is it varies from geographical region to geographical region based on what the government defines a corporation is yeah so it does strike me as a good smart tactic to aim for the root which is yeah. government. But it, like, what would it look like for something that was a legitimately public institution, whether it was run for the government or not? Like, What level of accountability, transparency would it have? Is direct democracy the right choice? I mean, inevitably, because of the structure, it's going to have to be given some regulation and legal protection by a government. Yeah, like I said before, the very definition of what these things are would end up being described by government legislation. Yeah, or it, it could arise in sort of like a dual power situation where it arises being not defined by the government, but the government decides eventually to tolerate it for its benefits or whatever. Or it defines its own terms. It's not government-defined terms. But then it, eventually a buy-in from the government comes instead of a, tr- a crackdown for whatever reason. Oh, yeah, like a symbiotic relationship rather than one being subordinate to the other. Yeah, and if like you're anti-government, you say like maybe eventually the government can fade away and this thing can fade up and become the new order or something like that. (laughs) Yeah, if you want to. Oh, is your pager going off? It is. Apparently, our financier changed. The Fraser Institute is seriously wrong's new backer. Um, Well, well, yeah. I mean, all this theorizing anyway was just in service mm -hmm. of saying this institution, this truly public institution, would be a really terrible idea if it was run by bureaucrats. Yeah, which inevitably would be. There's two options: there's bureaucrats and there's private corporations. Private 
business professionals. Yeah, and I mean, they're, they're not all svelte physically. Physically, but as far as far as balance sheet efficiency, extremely svelte. They just have the strongest motivation to make the most profits, have the most accountability to mm. the shareholders in terms of profits. Because think about it this way: if 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 a member of the public sees that their profits are high and that they realize that their profits are high and they shouldn't be high, they'll withhold their money. They won't take the bus. They won't use the public water system. I know that if the company providing water in my hometown did something wrong, I would just drive to another city to get water every few days. So, you know, on principle, why why wouldn't I? And look, the the fact of the matter is you're going to be able to 3D print water system in your house around the corner anyways, and then we're going to have a real revolution. So why don't we start now by privatizing everything, and then we'll follow that up with 3D printing, and then everyone gets what they want. And now a word from Seriously Wrong's newest, biggest sponsor, the Fraser Institute. Hi there, listeners of Seriously Wrong. I'm CEO Fraser Crane of the Fraser Institute. And I want to tell you today about Pittsburgh water privatization, a privatization success story. So in 2012, the Pittsburgh Water Authority, a bunch of bloated bureaucrats chomping away at taxpayer dimes, they had their systems so bad they needed repair, hundreds of millions of dollars in debt, and they're worried about the long-term future of the system. So they bring in someone elite, someone slick, someone from the private sector who knows how to manage. It's a French company named Viola. That's a multinational corporation with $27 billion in national revenue. That's a lot of customer confidence. That's what you need. The deal that they made was that for every dollar the city of Pittsburgh saved on water, Viola would get 50 cents. So just mathematically, I want you to think about that for a second. For every dollar they save by making cuts in the way that the water service is delivered, they actually only save 50 cents because 50 cents is going to a middleman called Viola. By 2015, under Viola's efficient public sector guidance, they cut the safety and water quality staff in half. They also took soda ash out of the water. That's an anti-corrosive additive that prevents lead pipes from disintegrating in the water. That's government overreach. They replaced it with a cheaper alternative. Technically, the Department of Environmental Protection, those paper pushers over there, were supposed to review this, but they were never informed this happened. In 2015, lead levels in the water were up above federal standards of safety. Uh Uh-oh, whoopsies, what have the bureaucrats done this time? This is widely blamed on the replacement of soda ash and a lack of safety staff. Those bureaucrats pointing fingers again. Uh, The water has also become extra expensive, triple the cost of the regional average. And some consumers are being billed way over their actual usage. A particular man was billed a year's worth of family water usage on an empty home in one month. Did you leave more taps than you could possibly have on all month, sir? Over the course of four years, Viola saved the taxpayers $22 million in cuts. Efficient. And then Viola was paid $11 million for those cuts. Efficient. And in 2016, Pittsburgh sued Viola. Another cash grab, another money grab from these politicians. In April 2016, Massachusetts sued Viola also for allowing 10 million gallons of sewage to spill in the town's harbor. Bureaucrats are the same anywhere you go. Am I right, Viola folks? The Michigan Attorney General has also charged Viola with fraud and negligence for failing to discover Flint's lead contamination problem after Viola was hired in 2015. Pittsburgh Mayor Bill Petuto said they had an incentive to not make capital investments in property planning and equipment, to not fix the pipes when needed, and instead pass these costs off to other agencies, the cities, and the ratepayers. Pittsburgh Water Authority employee put it this way, they will rape your water company and walk away with money bags. Said Pittsburgh resident Stephanie Lane, it looks like dookie water. And so there you have it, folks. Privatization success story. It's an incredible way. And now this is a private tape only for people who are uh, in the privatization industry. It's an incredible way to take a bunch of money from people and make this quality of services worse than the price is higher. And you make money. Thanks for listening. And thank you, Fraser Crane and the Fraser Institute for being the biggest sponsor on Seriously Wrong. It's no problem. It's, I'm happy to be here. Uh, so there's this like, kind of pattern where you have a government that wants to privatize and wants to give the handoff to their friends. They'll first sabotage the organization to make it run massive debts, decrease service, increase public complaints about it. And then they've got a perfect justification to sell it off for a diminished cost to their friends to jack up prices later. And it's like a reoccurring pattern. Do, do you think they really are 
that conscious of it or do they actually just believe that cutting costs on these things is good? It'll force them to be more efficient. If we decrease funding to the schools, they'll be better. Like I hear people making this argument. The problem is that they're just resting on all this free cash flow we're giving them. And I think in some cases there's definitely something real and malicious to it through people in governing bodies of certain ideologies. But then also if you ideologically don't believe in something because of either where it comes from or just the general premise of public ownership. Are you going to be the best steward of public ownership? Probably not. Like even the ideological disposition could breed a type of like laziness and disenfranchisement with treating the Yeah, it's like, it's like that character on Parks and Recreation. <laughs> what the fuck is his name? Swanson? Yeah, Ron Swanson. Yeah. Uh, he just like hates government and so doesn't do anything at his job and does it terribly and is only saved by his underling who loves government and puts her heart and soul into it. Um, <laughs> it's, it's, yeah, it's just a good point that like someone who ideologically disagrees with something is going to be a poor steward. But like like my, my point was just that, like, regardless of the intention of defunding it, whether it's honestly that you think that will help it somehow, or if it's like intentional sabotage, the, the end result is the same, that the thing just ends up not working as well, and mm -hmm. you're able to sell it off to uh, a company. Yeah, Hanlon's razor would suggest that it's incompetence and not malice. Right. But I carry venom towards those people because they do so much damage. But I mean, you know, public ownership isn't a panacea in itself. It needs to be in some way legitimately democratic. It needs to represent the interests of the people that it serves. Hmm. You don't want to have a power corporation that overcharges citizens for their power and then undercharges like multinational corporations for their power because of like some trade agreements and stuff. Although from my understanding, that's like often the case that there's different rates and industrial rate is way better. But like that's a poor stewardship of distributing resources and to places where it's needed. Yeah. And having this conversation constantly going on and the, the, the reality of privatization constantly going on takes energy and thought away from the questions of how do we run a successful public enterprise? How do, how do we provide electricity or medical service or shelter or all, all these things that everyone should have access to? How do we set that up best as a society? That's the real conversation and that's where the most interesting questions are. But we just keep getting stuck on this. Oh, well, maybe we should sell all of it off to a large corporation. A for-profit institution is always going to behave more or less the same way. It's going to try to increase profit and increase market share. There's like very predictable things. And within government, there's also a list of predictable things, but it's also kind of more of an open terrain and canvas. Because in, yeah, in some ways, governments have more flexibility because they're the ones who get to set the definitions, as I said before, the parameters. They get to write the game rules. And like, obviously, they have a lot of external parameters that they can't get outside. There's the realities of the election cycle and like pleasing people, you know, not going bankrupt and other things like that. So, so there are definitely parameters governments have to adhere to, but they do have... They, they have the bonus of not being a sort of slave to quarterly profit numbers. Profit d doesn't always have to be the bottom line. Yeah. But then that's just a starting point. That's not a guarantee that you're going to have a good organization. Yeah, especially when there's other incentives that are cross-referencing those, like personal incentives rather than like individuals in government aren't always following the best interests of government. Sometimes they're following the best interests of themselves using the power of government to enrich or, or, themselves. Or, yeah, or even just the best interests of their party versus the best interests mm. of the public. One other thing that it would be wrong not to mention is the possibility of precluding privatization of the worst kind through legislative safeguards, the same way that you can lock a government in a 20-year contract with shitty hospital cleaners. You can lock a government in a contract to only privatize certain services under extremely hard-to-achieve conditions, like, for example, a two-thirds majority vote of all the people who work in the company followed by a public referendum. You could also require that if something's privatized, that they only have a return on investment of a certain size uh, before taxation rates go up or something like that. Like you could set legislative frameworks that would persist after your term in office that could protect against future privatization. Yeah, right. So maybe doing that, you can carve out some time, some decades where people can actually say, oh, that's off the table for now. Let's actually focus on how do we 
build these public services in a way that's sustainable and beneficial to everyone. So yeah, like what what should an institution be? I mean, it should have some degree of accountability to the people that are affected by it. It should be aimed to provide those services at the lowest po- possible cost. And or I could imagine an argument around like water conservation that you set the price point based on how much water that it's reasonable for people to use. And then you use that profit to bring into general revenue to pay for other programs. Mm. That seems very justified to me. Mm-hmm. And it's it's still great to be efficient and get the costs all the way down so you can make more profit for general revenue to pay for healthcare, to pay for doctors and whatever else. One of the things I really like about imagining a functioning government system is how you can have things sort of like balance with each other or like generate profit somewhere. And and this is so key to understand if you're an anti-big government person and it's counterintuitive, but privatization means an increase in taxes for the same services. If you want the same services and you privatize things that generate revenue, even if it's uneven revenue that doesn't bring revenue every year, if you turn down revenue, you need to raise taxes to fill that gap to fund the same services, or you have to cut services, which you may support. But they, they'll never cut the ones you like. Tell you right now, you anti-authoritarian listener who I love so much in your heart, who doesn't like the government, they're never going to cut the waste first. They're not looking out for you. They're going to sell this shit to their friends, and they're going to jack up the prices. And you're going to pay more taxes in the end. This isn't a hypothetical, mathematical, economic reality of rational man A and rational man B. This is dozens and dozens of case studies that always have the same outcome. The joke is on you. The joke is on you. Yeah, you said it. You said it. I'm just looking at my watch here. The sign. Looks like the bus is late. You know, there's going to be another fare increase. In January. Really? We just had one. Yeah, by 2023, they're doubling it. Doubling it from what it is now or from where it was a year ago? From what it is now. Jesus Christ. (sighs) Oh, there's that bus. There's the bus. Oh, hi. Hey, bus driver. Hi, boys. Oh, that's fare increases. What the heck is that about? I just heard it's going to be doubled. Uh, no, it is. It is going to be double. Mm. <laughs> I guess it has to be that way. I'm just a bus driver. <laughs> you know, when they privatized the Wrongtown bus line, they said it was going to decrease fares, but it's going up and up and up. Did you did you at least get a raise? Are they? Uh, <laughs> no, all of me and my union brothers in the Wrongtown bus drivers union have had a 12-year wage freeze. <laughs> 12 uh, years? Yeah, I wish it would go up, honestly, but uh, what can you do? Uh, you got to pick the people up and drop them off. That's your job. <laughs> well, what am yeah, I going to do? I mean, Get into another field? I can't. Appreciate you doing it. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> you kind of feel the same way. It's like, what am I going to do besides riding the bus? I can't afford a car or car insurance. So I'm just going to pay the increased fares. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I sure will. And I'm just, I'm going to take the wage freeze and, and uh, can't change everything, but you can change whether or not you have a smile. Uh, yeah, I mean, I guess so. I don't know. It's, uh... But, you know, we haven't been running the uh, service out of town anymore. Uh, at least, mm-hmm. you know, we'll run them uh, during the day a few times, but it last one's at seven. And if you miss that, I guess you're stuck out there. <laughs> oh, geez. I hope uh, they're not planning to cut service to uh, the southeast district. I know it's a bit remote from the rest of the city, Uh so that's where I live. Yeah, they might. I don't know, but it depends, I guess, on ridership numbers and... uh, I mean, looking around the bus right now, it's not too full. Yeah, just you and a couple others, I guess. (laughs) If that's the case, I guess that's how it is. Just things are the way they are. I'm just a bus driver and... Prices go up, wages stay the same. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Gotta love Sorry, it. Sorry, just pull that. It's our stop right here. Okay, boys. Well, as we always say at Wrongtown Bus Company, it is what it is. <laughs> uh, yeah. Take yeah, care, boys. Yeah, see ya. Uh, Thanks for the ride. Well, he's a nice guy, eh? You didn't say anything the whole time we were on the bus. Yeah, no, that guy scares the shit out of me, man. So there's this unreality to him. I tried to talk to him about it once and it was really pointless. Uh-huh. So now I just kind of am like, yeah. It's interesting because he seems really well informed, but he hasn't. I don't know. He freaks me out, dude. I don't know. Almost like he's been hypnotized or something. His cheeks are so rosy. Too rosy for an adult man. You don't think he wears blush, do you? It looks natural. I think it's natural. I think it's natural too, but. He's like a Christmas elf. I never uh, talk re- to him re- unless I'm with you. Relentlessly neutral on privatization Christmas elf. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I guess and we both turn to the camera. Thanks for listening, everyone. This has been another episode of Seriously Wrong. We <laughs> came to this bus stop because this is where we sign off the show every week. <laughs> 
As you know, the show is listener supported. We have so many show ideas that we want to make. There's there's a lot of extra effort that we could be putting into the show to make it even better, to make other kinds of content to make more content but we need your help in order to do it if you donate six dollars a month there are bonus episodes Uh, for two dollars a month you can get into a facebook group for donators we are super thankful all those donations that already exist have allowed us to progress the show to the point where it's at now we think that it's getting better and better all the time and we want to keep going on that trajectory better shows more shows more kinds of content So yeah, you can donate on PayPal, you can donate on Patreon. Both those links are big, obvious buttons on our website that uh, make it easy for you (laughs) to uh, help us out and contribute to the show and contribute to what we're doing because we love doing it and we want to keep doing it. Yeah, and it's 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 an honor that you're here with us at the end of an episode that we produced. It's like, (laughs) uh, it's just cool to think about that you listened to the whole thing. Next time on Seriously Wrong, the new financial backer, David Avocado Wolf. Aaron, I'm so excited to share this with you. I've looked at all the research. This is 100% true. Here, take this turmeric. Oh, looks like uh, healthy. Not only is it healthy, would you believe that it is on the exact same wavelength as, get this, now this is going to blow your mind, 100% true, healing diamonds. Healing diamonds. Same wavelength. Would I believe that? Uh, yeah, I'll believe that. I've checked all the paperwork. I've checked all the real research, the suppressed research, and it is true. Our financial backers always give us the best repressed research, and that's how we know what we say is true. So welcome to the show, everyone. Today's episode is about healing diamond frequency turmeric. We're also going to have a special report on certain yoga poses and their effect on electric sexual energy. Hint, you'll be coming for hours. Stick with us. Constant ejaculation. All that and more coming up. Wrong Town Health Authority special report. Warning, the next episode of Seriously Wrong is so enlightening that it can make you uncontrollably and repeatedly come for hours <sighs> in orgasmic pain. Uh, I just wish I could stop ejaculating. Oh, it feels so good. People afflicted with seriously wrong disorder are unable to spend time with their families. Unable to go to work, we strongly recommend that you don't tune in to the next episode of Seriously Wrong because it's extremely dangerous how much it's going to make you come.